Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's show, we take a look at personalized and targeted cancer treatments. I think a lot of therapy now and even more um, in the future is that we'll be treating patients more based on the molecular abnormalities rather than the tumor site. Plus, the latest on pancreas transplants. I say it has dramatically improved. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we are actually more active now in trying to get patients transplanted just with a pancreas rather than waiting until they have kidney failure. And why do nurses today pursue a higher level of education? Only a few of our colleagues we saw having that, that extra additional education, but we see many more now. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we explore the latest in transplants of the pancreas. Plus, we take a look at how nurses are expanding their roles in modern healthcare. But first, the latest in personalized treatments for cancer. Well, the type of cancer a, per a person has and how it gets treated is no longer simply about where in the body the cancer began, such as in the lungs, the breast, or the colon. Today, more than ever, when doctors decide how to attack a cancer, they do so armed with a wealth of knowledge about the specific molecular and genetic makeup of their patient's tumor. Here to explain more about this is Dr. Stephen Graziano, Professor of Medicine specializing in hematology oncology at Upstate's Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Graziano. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. So the, our approach to cancer treatment these days is much more personalized and specific to our own particular makeup. Help, help us understand what exactly we mean when we say personalized medicine. Well, I think personalized medicine has been around for a while. Uh, it's undergone some changes in, in name, perhaps. We've always tried to tailor treatment for the specific patient since uh, I've been involved in oncology. However, over the past few years, our um, ability to uh, type, the, type tumors has improved to determine specifically which um, genes are abnormal, which molecular abnormalities are present, has allowed us to uh, target therapy for those specific uh, abnormalities. So we were able to tailor treatment more for patients um, than, than we did perhaps 20 years ago. So what, when we talk about personalized, or in this case, targeted therapies, and we'll get into that a bit more, what is it, what, what kind of um, things does that include when we talk about a cancer treatment plan or a screening plan when it's personalized? What does it include? Sure. When we see, whenever we see a new patient, we basically uh, you start with a accurate diagnosis, which is usually based on a biopsy and a, a pathologist review of the slides under the microscope. But beyond that, uh, tumors are um, sent to uh, a molecular diagnostics lab, where a certain percentage of patients may have uh, molecular abnormalities that um, are targetable. Um, for instance, in lung cancer, Probably about 15% of patients these days have uh, either um, a mutation of a gene called epidermal growth factor receptor, um, and about 5% of patients have a rearrangement of a gene called ALK, ALK. And we have specific oral treatments for those patients that are very uh, effective. So these days, the technology is such that we can actually, first of all, take a tumor, analyze what it's made up of, and then also take a look at, we also have, be, have begun to develop specific drugs that now can attack that particular type of tumor. That's is that correct. correct. And that's really what we're talking about when we say personalized medicine, those that's right. That combination. Now you can you can uh, make the analogy to breast cancer, where for many years we've we've treated patients based on the hormonal receptors, and a, a gene called HER2, which has really dramatically altered the treatment for breast cancer. So we're getting more and more of those treatments for lung cancer as well. 
So what it, it basically, besides, I mean, specifically targeting these things, how has that changed what we've done with cancer therapy? I think a lot of therapy now and even more um, in the, we foresee it more in the future, is that we'll be treating patients, as you stated earlier, more based on the molecular abnormalities rather than the tumor site. If you have a, a, a mutation in a specific gene, it doesn't matter whether it's lung cancer, thyroid cancer, colon cancer, you'll, you'll treat based on that molecular abnormality rather than the tumor site, and that's, that's a shift. So how, basically, how is this accomplished? I mean, besides getting a sample of the tumor, do you do other testing in terms of the genetics of the individual as well? That is um, not as far advanced. Um, there are, of course, in breast cancer patients that have uh, BRCA genes, which are, you know, been in the news and well described and often leads to, you know, consideration of prophylactic uh, mastectomies and... So some preventive uh, methods. Right. We really don't have that yet for lung cancer. We, we do know that patients with a family history of lung cancer have a increased risk. We just don't know what those genes are at this point. It probably has to do with how we uh, metabolize, um, you know, the carcinogens in cigarette smoke. But we don't have that pinned down yet for lung cancer. So what kinds of cancer, you've alluded to a few, what kinds of cancers today are being treated with this approach? Well, I mentioned breast cancer. That's a good good example. Um, um, How about colorectal? Colorectal, yes. There's a gene called KRAS, which uh, does uh, have prognostic significance as well as uh, implications for various treatments. There's a drug called um, cetuximab that we use um, for certain types of uh, colon cancer based on the KRAS mutation status. Uh, thyroid cancer. Um, Lung cancer. Uh, absolutely, lung cancer. Um, How about kidney cancer? Kidney cancer, it's um, not so much based on molecular profile, but uh, there's been an explosion of, of treatment options for uh, kidney cancer. It's even hard for a medical oncologist to keep track of all the new drugs that are available, uh, including even uh, the, new, the new immune drugs that uh, have just been approved by the FDA. So what do you see is the, is the greatest benefit of this type of care? I think the, the, uh, the benefit is uh, you can choose more effective treatments for patients and, of course, less toxic treatments for patients. I'm sure everyone's aware that chemotherapy, systemic standard chemotherapy, has been the mainstay of treatment for lung cancer for many years. And now we have options where often patients can take uh, oral medication at home with a different uh, side effect profile, less nausea, vomiting, hair loss, fatigue, things that you think of uh, that you associate with chemotherapy. There are still some side effects with these drugs, but they tend to be more, much more tolerable for the patients, more convenient. Are they equally effective, I guess, is the question. They're even more effective than uh, standard chemotherapy in, in most cases. So. so before, instead of trying to hit a flea with a bat, which is kind of what we were doing by affecting the whole body mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, really losing hair and all kinds of other cells that really weren't involved in the cancer. Now you're really targeting very specifically the particular tumor, the particular type of cancer, and less, you're not kind of giving poison to the whole body. That's right. And that seems that obviously it's pretty obvious what that benefit would be. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with oncologist Dr. Stephen Graziano, and we're talking about personalized medicine and targeted approaches to cancer treatment. So what's going on currently in the field? What do you see as, right now, the biggest breakthroughs and or challenges? Well, I think um, the field of molecular diagnostics is really uh, advancing pretty rapidly, and I think our goal is to try to come up with a target um, that we can attack uh, therapeutically for each patient. We still have a long ways to go. I think probably we're only talking about 15 to 20 percent uh, of the pie so far. There's a genetic mutation called KRAS, which is seen in about one out of four patients with lung cancer. Unfortunately, we don't have a good therapeutic target or therapeutic agent for that target yet. And research, but I'm sure, is going the, on The research is point. definitely going on at nice centers we have close to us, like uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Memorial Sloan Kettering, 
and we certainly do a lot of clinical trials at uh, Upstate as well. So I think we're hoping to uh, design um, uh, more specific therapies for patients going forward. We have a lot of clinical trials going on. One new uh, player in the field is uh, the uh, immune therapies, these so-called checkpoint inhibitors, which have been approved by the FDA for treatment of lung cancer uh, recently. And uh, um, these are exciting new drugs. We've been doing immune therapy research for years, um, but nothing has really made a, a major impact in the clinic until recently. And these drugs have been compared head-to-head -head with chemotherapy in the second-line setting, and they're they're an improvement. Uh, there's better survival and also better tolerability. So less side effects with immunotherapy as well. So the next step with immune therapies is to move those right up front to uh, first-line therapy. And we, we were doing some studies here at Upstate, and many centers are doing uh, studies like that. That had come into the news pretty um, recently when I think uh, former President Jimmy Carter was treated with some kind of an Im immunotherapy to deal with his melanoma that had spread, I guess. Absolutely. And, and that's uh, apparently was life-saving, uh, at least according to the press. So that's pretty, pr and I assume pretty the, profound. I assume uh, the drug is um, uh, one of these uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. I don't know specifically what he received, but... These are the very drugs that are being tested in lung cancer as well. So what are the major challenges that you face today as a researcher and or a clinician in terms of treating cancer with these kinds of new approaches? Well, I think uh, identifying the patients is the first challenge. You know, whenever you treat a patient, the first step is, as I mentioned earlier, an accurate diagnosis um, and then uh, looking for the various targets accurate staging, and then from there you design a treatment uh, program. For early stage lung cancer, just as a, a general outline, surgery is, is a, still plays a very important role. For stage three disease, which is confined to the chest, radiation combined with chemotherapy is, is uh, the usual treatment. When we get to stage four disease, that's where a lot of these things come up that we've been discussing. Um, uh, targeted therapy based on uh, molecular abnormalities. Um, Research is showing us that there are, you know, when you build up resistance to these uh, these targeted therapies, there's there's newer drugs coming along that can treat patients that are resistant to the first treatment. So many times we have second and third line therapies for um, patients with the molecular abnormalities. So let me. So I understand as a layperson, what you're saying now is. For the earlier stages of a cancer, as a cancer is being staged, meaning it's less invasive or it's, le it's spread less, you still will go to the more traditional chemotherapy, surgery, radiation. Absolutely. And those are a proven benefit uh, in, in those patients. At this point. And we'll reserve some of the newer kinds of targeted therapies to people who are in a further advanced in their cancer. Is that yep. correct? But as uh, I was going to say, is that will that change over time? Where it should. If, if these immunotherapies prove, for example, to be more effective with less side effects, will these then become the first line even in an early yeah, stage cancer? You're right on target. You know that's that's the way a lot of cancer therapies developed. It's tested in the more advanced patients, and if it shows effectiveness, then it's moved to the earlier stages where maybe you can make more, uh, even a more major impact in earlier stage patients. So all the therapies we've been talking about have been uh, are being moved in the research setting to earlier stages of disease. So we hope, hopefully, they'll make uh, even more of an impact at that time. So is there a problem with cost, though? I mean, with trying to develop these individual uh, therapeutic agents, as we call them, drugs or whatever, for each kind of a tumor problem, it would seem to be a, a huge undertaking and very costly. Is that preventing? Some research, I, I for think example. that's sort of the elephant in the room. I think we, it's something we as a nation are going to have to face because these newer therapies, while very exciting scientifically, are quite expensive. And um, our insurance companies are, are paying for those, but that's, you know, that's why premiums go up. And you know, I think um, Congress and, um, you know, will have to somehow look at this issue because I, I think it's, it's a looming problem for the United States. I think recently in the news there's been talk of Vice President Biden and his last year and perhaps going forward in the future his going to devote himself as I think as a result of his own personal losses um, with his son to devote himself to trying to convene some of these forces in and trying to get some of this funding um, going for 
you know, all of this very exciting cancer research. So that's hopeful news. I think so. I agree. It I, sounds I, like everything is, we're really kind of on the cusp of some very new and exciting therapies, it sounds to me. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing it. And you are engaged in some very serious clinical trials right here as well. At, we are, yeah. And I, I look forward to hearing more about those. Maybe in the future you can come and share some of that specific information with us. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Graziano, professor of medicine specializing in hematology oncology at Upstate's Cancer Center. Coming up next, the latest breakthroughs in transplants of the pancreas. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. In 2012, approximately 29 million Americans, a little over 9% of the population, had diabetes. And approximately one and a quarter million children and adults had type 1 diabetes. As the number of people with diabetes in this country grows, the demand for more effective treatments grows as well. Here to fill us in on one such treatment is Dr. Reiner Grusner. He's a professor of surgery and the division chief of transplantation at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Grusner. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me back, Linda. So what happens to people when they have type 1 diabetes? What are the long-term health consequences of this disease? Well, maybe let me take a step back and look at the bigger picture of diabetes in general. <clears throat> You mentioned already 5 or 10% of patients are type 1 diabetic, which are what we used to be called insulin-dependent or juvenile-onset diabetics. However, diabetes has become one of the major health concerns um, in the nation and across the world. You already mentioned that about uh, 10 to 15% of Americans are diabetic. There are probably another 20% that are pre-diabetics and don't even know about it. It is uh, one of the leading causes um, of death and major health consequences. It's the number one uh, reason for heart attacks, probably the number one reason for strokes, um, the number reason for major amputations, the number one reason for kidney failure, and the number one reason for blindness. So it has taken a huge toll on, on all of us, and we as a country spend about $250 billion a year on medical costs and losses, wages, and so forth. Um, it is uh, considered to be one of the top five to eight um, uh, most common causes of death, um, more likely than not underreported because um, about only 40% of diabetics, diabetes is even mentioned as the cause of death or the underlying cause um, of death. So I mean, we are dealing with a, with a major, major problem. And over the last few years, I mean, we have made significant improvements both in the standard conservative treatment as well as in um, uh, rarer uh, types of treatments such as transplantation. So let's go back a little bit here further. You did a nice overview of obviously the concern in this country for diabetes and the, and the tremendous health ramifications that it has for us. But what exactly is going on in diabetes? I mean the pancreas is really having a problem. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the two types are differentiated by the fact that in type 1 diabetics, the body produces antibodies and destroys basically the insulin-producing cells, the so-called beta cells. So a type 1 diabetic usually does not have beta cells left in his body and is not able to produce any insulin. Type 2 diabetics, it is different. Um, you either don't produce enough insulin or the body, uh, and that means uh, fatty tissues, uh, um, muscles, and so forth, are not able to um, break down the glucose levels, and then you end up with um, high blood sugar levels. So they are very distinct in, I mean, their pathophysiology, their origin, and uh, between the two, obviously, the one that is more difficult to treat is type 1 diabetes. And that's because basically the pancreas has become non-functional. 
um, the endocrine portion of the pancreas has become non-functioning because only 2% of the entire pancreas produce insulin. 98% of the pancreas produce enzymes that aid I mean, digestion of food and so forth. And it is interesting that you asked that question because it was not until the late 19th century that people understood the dual nature of the pancreas, that it had that it did more than just producing enzymes. And then it was in the mid of the 19th century that these cells were detected, the so-called islet, um, of the islets of the pancreas, and we know now that they produce a number of hormones, of which the most prominent is insulin. And obviously insulin is crucial to regulating the blood sugar in the body. Correct. And without it, the, all of the consequences that you just described will take place over time if you don't have regulate, when you have unregulated high blood sugar. So what is a viable treatment? I mean, how does the pancreas transplant, which is something you've come to talk about, present as a viable treatment for diabetes, and what type of diabetes? Yeah. So let's really concentrate on the type 1 diabetics because those are the patients that require usually insulin and large amounts of uh, insulin administration. The problem that patients are facing is that even when they are very meticulous and thorough in trying to control their blood sugar levels, they not infrequently oscillate between the highs and the lows of um, um, blood sugar control. Um, in many patients, actually the majority of patients, we now have devices, pumps and, um, and other things in place that aid, I mean, the control of blood sugar levels. But in about 10% of all type 1 diabetics, and no matter how um, um, thoroughly they try to regulate their blood sugars by measuring blood sugar levels five, six, seven, eight times a day, by injecting insulin five, six times a day, uh, by their endocrinologists and diabetologists um, really um, helping them and assisting them as much as they can. And they still will not be able to avoid hypoglycemic episodes, meaning the blood sugar is too low, or episodes where the blood sugar is too high. Now, the ones that are too high um, are more likely than not responsible for the secondary complication of diabetes, but the low ones are the ones that are dangerous and actually can kill patients. So about 4% um, of patients with what we call hypoglycemia or hypoglycemic unawareness, frequent episodes of low blood sugar levels, die annually. That is a very high number. So if you extrapolate that life expectancy of an individual of 30, 40 years, and the um, chances of dying from hypoglycemia is 2 or 3%. You do the math and you know that the life expectancy will be shortened just because of that. So that's where the pancreas transplant comes in because no matter how sophisticated current devices are, they will not create an um, environment of normal glycemia as we call it. Um, it will just correct, I mean, the current blood sugar levels, but there's a lag time to react and very frequently it ends to and produce hypoglycemia. So what does the tra the pancreas transplant actually accomplish? Are you actually removing that so-called malfunctioning tra uh, pancreas of the individual and replacing it with someone else's pancreas? No, you just add another um, organ to the body of the patient. The pancreas of the patient remains in place because remember 98% is just for the function of uh, digesting food and the patient still needs that, so we add a pancreas to the body of the patient as we do it with kidney transplants. We don't usually take the kidneys out. Now, <clears throat> the reason why pancreas transplant works is, and we don't really understand um, um, all the mechanisms, is, is that it creates and is the only way to create long-term normal glycemia. So you don't run into the problems of low blood sugar levels anymore, and you don't usually run into the problem of high blood sugar um, either. So it is, it is actually the it select. It stabilizes. It absolutely stabilizes things, and in many ways, because it stabilizes blood sugars, it also can halt or even reverse some of the diabetic complications. So in patients who already have a kidney failure, 
Um, we usually do a, pancre- a diabetic patient with kidney failure. We do a combined pancreas kidney transplant because adding the pancreas is just the surgical um, or the addition of the surgical procedure, but the patient is already um, on immunosuppression, so we don't add any other significant risks to it. I'm going to ask you to hold that thought for a minute. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with transplant surgeon Dr. Reiner Grissner. We're talking about pancreas transplants, but let's get back to who are the people who are most who are the best candidates for this kind of surgery? I mean, we have so many people in this country with diabetes. It's people with type one, and people whose pancreas is malfunctioning almost in terms of insulin production. And then you started going into this idea of people who also need a kidney transplant. So help us understand all that. So in general, pancreas transplantation in ninety percent of the cases is for type one diabetes. Um, it is for patients that have brittle or labile diabetes. Where they need stabilization of their blood sugar. And no matter how hard they have tried or the doctor has tried, they have not been successful. And then there are patients who have already developed complications of diabetes. Such as? Kidney failure, where you do a combined procedure. But you also can <clears throat> um, include in that category patients who have developed certain complications that will predispose them to develop within month or years kidney failure or eventually become blind. So you're preventing a failure of the kidney by basically reinforcing or stabilizing their pancreas by putting in a new pancreas. Absolutely correct, Linda. And you may also do that for people that have advanced retinopathy and they may turn blind in a few years from now. And again, I mean, stabilization of the blood sugars will not reverse, I mean, the changes that are there, but will hold the progression of further changes. So everyone who has advanced secondary complications would also be considered a candidate for pancreas transplantation. Overall, it is a relatively small number of all the patients that have diabetes, but really the, the patients where the endocrinologists, the diabetologists fail are the ones that we usually see. It sounds like it can make a dramatic change then in their diabetes because if you really if it is successful and that's what I want to know from you is is how often is it successful basically you've you've eliminated the problem. That is correct. Now let me start first the risk of undergoing the procedure and dying from the procedure is almost minimal. It is less than 5%. It's anywhere between 2 and 3%. Now if you take the standard diabetic population and you look at the mortality within one year, it is greater than 10%. So, I mean, of course, we are selective about who should have a pancreas transplant, but the results in terms of patient survival are excellent. And I also want to address one myth that has been um, presented many, many times, um, not only by patients, but also by physicians. And that is that immunosuppressive medication is harmful or will kill you. That was certainly a concern in the 1980s when patients from over-immunosuppression died because of infections. Let me interrupt you for a second. So what you're suggesting, just for our listeners, is that if you do get a pancreas transplant, even if you survive the surgery, which you should, and it's successful, often you would in the past have to take immunosuppressive medication so that the pancreas isn't rejected. And there's been some concern that there are side effects and risks associated with taking that medication. And you say no, it's changed. I, well, it's changed. I, I, I say it has dramatically improve, improved. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why we, we are actually more active now in trying to get patients transplanted just with a pancreas rather than waiting until they have kidney failure. So in other words, it really can be a silver bullet for some patients. Absolutely. And the graft survival, meaning the transplanted or the survival of the transplanted pancreas is now about 85%. So you do the math. I mean, someone who undergoes a procedure has a very low risk of losing his or her life and a very, very low risk also of losing the pancreas. And the interesting thing is, is just imagine, I mean, you had diabetes for 20, 30 years. Every day you check your blood sugars eight times a day, you inject four or five times a day, and suddenly you have this functioning pancreas in your body, you can wake up in the morning, you can drink a Coke, you can eat a brownie, you don't have to check your blood sugar anymore. I mean, it's it's about quality it's of life. It's life-changing. It's life-changing, it's, it's life-saving, life but it's also life-enhancing. And, and the very little bit of time we have left, is there a problem, though, in securing 
the organs. I mean, I know that throughout, we've often talked on this show about the limit that we have in terms of kidneys with the great demand for kidneys. Is that also true with pancreas? Not right now. We do about 1,000 pancreas transplants um, per year in the nation, and we probably could do 1,500 to 2,000. So under um, the right circumstances, there is a way to expand um, the option of pancreas transplantation in the right patient. And as I said, it's, it really is for brittle and labile diabetic patients. And it can be life-saving. It absolutely life-changing. is. Life-changing. Thank you so very much for coming in and sharing this with us. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's very hopeful information. My guest has been Dr. Reiner Grusner, Division Chief of Transplantation at Upstate Medical University and a professor of surgery here as well. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. New Year's resolutions four weeks later, or blame and shame versus review and do, a do-over. Well, dear listeners, if you haven't been tuning in to check up from the neck up the last few years, and slimy shame on you if you haven't, but if you have, you know that 45% of us who make New Year's resolutions succeed after six months compared to 4% who don't make resolutions. Amazing, huh? What a difference a resolution makes. How about me? A year plus ago, I told you about my resolve to spend 90 minutes a day writing my book. Well, even though I put it in my schedule, also a good idea, I didn't. Not even close. Now, I could make what we psychology types call the fundamental attribution error and blame and shame myself alone, attribute the whole problem to me, and call myself a despicable human being who failed. But more useful when we don't meet a goal is to look back and review the whole situation, including ourselves, see what interfered and make a new plan to solve the big-picture problem. So what happened for me? Well, to start, number one, my 98-year-old mom passed away about a year ago, having named me executor of her will. And two, not being a professional executor, I made a wildly unrealistic (laughs) estimate that I'd be done with the will stuff in a week. A week? No kidding. But I just finished now. So subtract about 30 writing minutes a day over the whole year for that. And three, I hurt my sacroiliac about the same time. Sacro what, you say? Yeah, that's what I said. Something in the lower back that hurts. And four... Not being a spring chicken anymore, the stretch and tone repair has taken about 60 writing minutes every day. No kidding. So subtract that 60 and that 30 from the 90, and we get the big zip. So I feel better already with a broader view and my new plan. I'm going to use that better energy to start writing with that the will is done 30 minutes a day. How about you? What's your plan? I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, how nurses are expanding their roles in today's modern health care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Quality patient care depends greatly on having a well-educated nursing workforce. 
in order to meet the demands of an evolving healthcare system and to meet the changing needs of patients. Research has shown that lower mortality rates, fewer medication errors, and positive outcomes are all linked to nurses who are prepared at the baccalaureate and graduate degree levels. Well, here to tell us more about all of this is Nancy Page. She's a registered nurse and a chief nursing officer at Upstate Medical University. And joining us also is Archie McEvers. He's a nurse practitioner and a clinical coordinator for the palliative care service at Upstate Medical University as well. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, Nancy, let's start with you. Nurses now require these higher levels of education. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, there's some clear data by some nursing researchers, such as uh, Linda Aiken, that shows the more RNs we have at the bedside with bachelors, uh, the better our patient mortality is. So basically, the less patients die, less patients have complications. Let's back up a little bit and help our listeners understand. What, let's say 20 years ago, what did, did it require in terms of education to become a nurse? So 20 years ago, probably the most of the nursing programs were actually hospital schools of nursing. Uh, Krauss and St. Joe's initially were hospital schools of nursing. That was a two-year program, Archie? Yes. I think back then it was a two-year program, high, so high school completion and then a two-year nursing program. Right. So it's kind of an associate's degree, much like you would get in the community college. But it, yeah, it offered a diploma, not even the associate's degree. Okay, and that was a diploma of nursing, of nursing, per se. And then what started happening after that, and let's say within the last 20 years? We started moving toward what? Right. I, I think uh, nursing had a recognition of what the bachelors actually brought to the profession. Uh, not only the technical skills that nursing have, but the uh, educational skills, management skills, research skills, um, and those weren't taught at the uh, diploma or the uh, associate degree level. So then the push was, and push continues to be, that nurses today, in order to get an RN degree, you are required to have four years. Is that no, correct? No, minimally you have to have two years. You have to have an associate's degree. Um, uh, the New York State and other states have been pushing for a bachelor's as an entry into RN practice, but that has yet to successfully pass in this state. But the goal here is for higher education. Archie, tell us why you think that's important. Um, Evidence-based practice is, is a major uh, factor these days, and uh, the evidence uh, shows that Higher educated nurses give better nursing care and uh, mortality rates decrease and patients are able to be cared for more successfully and get out of the hospital more quickly as well. Now it seems that there are factors in healthcare today that also could be contributing to this need. It strikes me technology alone and all the advances in technology alone may be playing a role. What's your experience with that, Nancy? Well, it, I think um, Archie's role actually in our palliative care service is a prime example. Um, palliative care is not hospice care. Um, palliative care is much more than that. I'll let Archie explain it, but that role didn't exist 10 years ago, and the fact that we have a nurse coordinator of that service uh, just really demonstrates how that advanced practice degree was necessary for a practice such as Archie's. Well, let me let me use you as an example then, Archie. Give yes. us an example of, or tell us a little bit about your role in palliative care and why a higher level of education is necessary. Okay. Um, let me back up just by saying that I started out as a two-year associate degree nurse over 40 years ago, and I reached uh, a higher level of um, experience by progressing from regular floor care into intensive care. And I reached a level where I thought, I can do more, I can be more. So that's when I decided to go back to school to get my bachelor's and then my master's degree. I initially wanted to be a, uh, a clinical nurse specialist, which is more of an educator, um, but as fate would have it, I ended up uh, becoming a nurse practitioner. And um, so I have my master's degree. And initially I worked in the cardiac surgery service here at Upstate for many years. And that was very fulfilling, but it was time for a change after over 20 years in cardiac surgery. So palliative care, 
I, when someone asks me what led me to palliative care, I say, I think I had a spiritual tug in that direction. I am a very spiritual person, and I understand how difficult it can be for patients and family members going through very difficult situations. They may come in and out of the hospital frequently with recurrent illnesses. They have symptoms that are difficult to manage. They need direction when they come to a point where treatment is no longer helping them. So that's where it all started for me. And it really requires a lot of education and experience to reach the level uh, to provide that level of care for patients and family members. Just to clarify one thing though, in, in order for you to become a nurse practitioner, and in that way in New York State today, you could literally have your own practice Correct. without direct supervision by a physician. Right. Um, what what did your education, did you require, is it a master's degree in order to become a nurse practitioner? Yes, it is a master's degree that is required to become a nurse practitioner. Getting back to the palliative care, yes. it also leads me to think about with our population aging and living longer, and so eventually we all, none of us get out of this alive, <laughs> we all right. have to face a point at which we may need something like palliative care. Um do you think that that has that changed again the demand for or the need Nancy for more nurses to seek this higher level of training? I think it has. I, I think where nurses really excel, whether it's palliative care, oncology, diabetes, is helping that patient fit their care and treatment into their lifestyle. So, because we're probably not going to do a lot changing their lifestyle, so we need to figure out how can that care and treatment work with. Um, what this patient does on a daily basis. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with registered nurses Nancy Page and Archie McEvers. We're talking about nursing today, the need for higher levels of education, really for all nurses. So that whole idea of the increasing demands today, maybe people living longer, more complex problems, higher levels of technology. How about things like shorter hospital stays. I mean, do you think that creates more pressure, for example, on nurses within hospitals and the need for, again, higher levels of education? Absolutely. Um, patients are sicker these days, and uh, the testing and diagnostics, the medical care is so much more involved than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And Hospitals, a hospital stay is very expensive. There's no doubt about it. And because insurance companies uh, have, you know, so much expense involved, they want patients to get out of the hospital more quickly so that they don't have to pay so much. So yes, patients are being uh, encouraged to try to leave the hospital as quickly as possible after an illness or after treatment. So the nursing staff, not only in the hospital, but in the community, need to be better trained to care for these patients. And as you, in your particular position, you see a lot of this transition from hospital back into the community. And again, nurses play a key role in that as well. Absolutely. Um, we do our best, I think, in the hospital to teach the patients and families how to care for themselves. And then um, visiting nurses uh, need to be involved in that care as well. So we try to disseminate as much information to them as possible to provide the best uh, transition from hospital to home care. Also, what strikes me is that today, primary care at least in the in the medical profession, seems to be a shrinking area. I mean, less fewer and fewer med students graduate and say, "I'm going into primary care and secondary." And the need yet continues to grow as our population, as we said, continues to age, and is very much in need of that kind of primary care. So the pressure really is on. It seems to me, for nurses such as yourself, Archie, who have a nurse practitioner degree, to provide that kind of primary care. Do you think that's another factor that may be leading nurses toward that higher level? 
Oh, I think it's it's an enormous opportunity for nursing uh, for our. The nurses at Upstate are eligible for tuition benefits after uh, six months. And so some of those are some of our nursing technicians who are pursuing an initial LPN or RN degree. Some of those are RNs with bachelors pursuing a master's degree. Some of them PhDs and DNPs. Uh, I think they see the opportunity not only within the hospital setting, but within subspecialties like palliative care, um, out in the community like in primary care. Uh, so I think that drives them to start back in school. And and it's and today, as you said, there are a lot of different opportunities. What are some of the different modalities through which a nurse can get that? You said there's tuition credit in the case of being employed by right. some some hospital. But but are there also opportunities through community colleges, self learning, online courses? What what's on out there today, Archie? Um, the College of Nursing here at Upstate does many online nursing courses. The push is more and more towards using technology to, uh, to allow that. They don't require as many professors in the classroom setting uh, because they can do so much more uh, via online courses. Um, and one could continue to perhaps hold a job in the private sector and then continue to basically educate themselves on their own time. Yes, it's much easier for the working nurse to uh, further her education, his or her education, because of the online course availability and part-time and various times of the day. Do you see that, that locally anyway that you see kind of a, a coordination between some of these programs and uh, community colleges or colleges in terms of trying to facilitate nurses getting higher education opportunities? There's, there's definitely partnerships with um, uh, SUNY Upstate, uh, Lemoyne uh, locally, with some of the local hospitals, uh, partnering with those hospitals to encourage those the RNs to complete their bachelor's degree. So the hospital has to accommodate the nurses with one, tuition support, but also scheduling support. And then the colleges support the nurses by having weekend programs, online programs, evening programs. So the push is greatly is, is clearly there. The need is greatly there. And it sounds like the institutions are trying to respond to it. Do you have any clue? Or, I mean, do you have a sense of what's roughly what the percentage of nurses these days that start out and will then go on for these real higher level degrees, like a master or even a doctorate? Do you know? Yeah, I has it been growing significantly? I think certainly the master's degree has been just since Archie and I, and Archie's been in practice a little longer than I have, but I think since the two of us started in nursing practice 30, 40 years ago, um, most of our colleagues weren't in school. Yeah, I agree. Um, you were a nurse and you stayed at the bedside and only a few of our colleagues we saw having that, that extra additional education uh, and the desire to do that, but we see many more now. And today it sounds like the need is there, the demand is there, and the opportunity is there, and that's very hopeful and great. I mean, the more highly educated nurses, as you say, mortality goes down, but I think patient satisfaction has to go up from my own experience. So I, yes. think, I think that's great. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing all this with us. My guests have been Nancy Page and Archie McEvers. They're both registered nurses, and Nancy is the chief nursing officer at Upstate Medical University, and Archie is a nurse practitioner and the clinical coordinator for the palliative care services at Upstate Medical University. Thanks so much again. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Sean Thomas Doherty is the author and editor of 13 books. Most recently, All You Ask For Is Longing. He also works in a pool hall. He gave us a very poignant prose poem called Something Lovely as the Rain. When pain pauses... A new world emerges, something lovely as the rain, or like the sunlight strolling in the afternoon without teeth, or a cracked egg, or a piece of glass. 
The wind blew your long lashes, and what was fear left hanging or tossed on the waves? Or should I say bay we walked beside? The cottonwood was floating, children flew kites, the schools were closed down. The kites, you said, are like lilies on fragile strings. You did not say butterflies, though the monarchs were fluttering on the milkweed. Despite the heat, your scarred hands were blue crosses. You were not in a wheelchair. We limped slowly along. Every now and then, someone would fall on roller skates. What if we ate the wild roses, you said, petal by petal, disarming the silence, the sense that something would happen? Where were our daughters? Even this already seemed like a story. Did I mention we were poor, except for a bag of almonds I stole from the corner store? There was something nearing music. The locusts were whirring, birds in the sky like Chinese brushstrokes, and you were blooming into nothing that could stay. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we take a closer look at Lyme disease. Plus, we explore the importance of proper nutrition for the older adult and how complications following gender reassignment surgery can be successfully treated. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>